0: Alrighty, what is up everybody? Welcome to the uh, Wayfarers Christian Church Sunday evening live stream. Uh, my name is Nick Griffin. I am the lead pastor here at Wayfarers Christian Church. Uh, if this is your first time joining us, I'm super excited to have you with us, if you've been with us before. Uh, I think you're going to be really excited, and really interested in what we're going to be doing today uh, for this service. It almost kind of feels like a cliche every time we say it, but we're always like, oh, this service is going to be a little bit different than than usual. But um, that seems to kind of be the status quo here at Wayfarers, is we are just trying trying out new things, trying things differently every week. And this week, uh, we wanted to try having a service that was specifically geared at answering um, a, f- a few sets of questions that we've gotten uh, from a few members here at the church and, and a few friends of ours that have asked some questions specifically related um, to church membership. Um, this is one of those ideas that if you've grown up in church, it probably is not even something you've even uh, questioned or thought about. You know, church membership, it's just a thing we do. You know, you you get up, you go, and you become a member of a church. Um, but the, the the real interesting question that was brought up is, is this idea of church membership biblical? That's the specific question that we wanted to answer today, is is the way we do church membership, I guess I would say specifically in the, in the Western American church today, is this a biblical concept? Is this something that we should be doing? This is also really helpful because we are a relatively new church. We've only been going for a few months here. Well, I say that. We're, we're nearing a year now at this point. It's It's been about a year that we have been going between our live streams and our meeting in, in, in person here Um that, uh, But as a relatively new church, we haven't really fully exactly defined what church membership is going to look like at, at this church specifically. So this was one of those things that was really helpful um, for me to to do the study myself. Uh, you know, I, I, I love when people ask questions that I, I have some ideas about, but I have not really done the like deep dive on studying it personally. Um, and so it just kind of, it it forces me to get in there, to get into the word and to study it, uh, for myself. And it also is kind of helping us define a little bit of what we are going to be doing, um, as a church here at Wayfarers. But like I said, the question for today is, is church membership biblical? And because the idea of, of biblical is so central to this question, um, we're going to be pulling up a whole bunch of Bible verses, so just be ready for that. There's a, there's a long list of them. Um, I'm looking at my wife, Adrian back here running the uh, pro presenter. I think we're—hopefully we're, we'll be on the same page here. We'll be able to go through the, the scriptures specifically. Um, Adrian and Reagan, our worship leader, were filling me in on the idea of a uh, of Bible drill uh, recently as something that— um, I guess specifically Baptist churches do, I guess. Is that the thing? Uh, I, as not a Baptist kid who didn't grow up Baptist, I wasn't familiar with Bible drill, but you know, it's just the, uh, as I understand it, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, like a competition where you would be giving a pa- you would be given a passage and you had to like, as quickly as you could open up to that passage, find that passage. And it was, it was like a, uh, we used to do something called Bible Bowl, I think it's kind of similar, like a competition related to the Bible. Uh, today, if you got to be a part of those Bible drill classes, you, those skills are gonna come in real handy because we're, go, we're going we're going through several passages today looking at this concept. So I wanted to divide it in kind of two camps here at the beginning. First, I wanna give you some of the arguments that people give. Uh, that would answer that question as yes. Here's, here's what some people say to answer that yes, church membership is biblical. And I'm mostly basing this on a particular article uh, by a, a famous pastor, many of you may have heard of him named Matt Chandler, who's at a church called the Village Church in Dallas, Texas. I really like Matt Chandler. I like a lot of how he uh, approaches the way that they structure their church. And he himself is very, very convinced that uh, church membership is, in fact, a biblical concept. So he wrote an article kind of defending that idea, defending the fact that he thought church membership was biblical. And I just really pulled a lot of his points Later on this week, we're going to post uh, kind of all these notes I have from this lesson today. It'll have this article along with another one I'm going to mention later linked so you guys can go and do some further reading and research if you would like as well. But we're just going to kind of get the 1,000-foot view, some of the th- main points that uh, Matt Chandler makes. So again, the first part here we're going to do is here's some defenses from people who do believe that church membership is a biblical concept. The first point that Matt Chandler makes Is that if you look at the Bible, you see that church leaders are actually accountable for the members of the church. They're actually accountable to God is the way that he defines it. So first off, uh, the verse that really cemented it for him is Hebrews chapter 13 verse 17. And there's there's a lot going on in the context of this section of Hebrews, but the verse that really cemented it for him is uh, where, where the writer of Hebrews says, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give account. Do this so that their work will be a joy and not a burden for that would be of no benefit to you. So... <laughs> The, the, the line that really got him is the fact that these church leaders are going to be accountable for you. And so he's telling uh, the members of this church, the church that the book of Hebrews is written to, to, to submit to their leaders, understanding that those leaders are actually going to be accountable for them. This is a concept that I've only recently been discovering, but it's a very interesting one about the fact that that we are actually going to have to be accountable as leaders, I would say, uh, not only for for ourselves, but also for uh, the members of our church. Uh, There's another passage in Acts chapter 20, where the Apostle Paul is talking to a group, uh, to a church, right before he is about to leave. And he says to them, Therefore, I declare to you... uh, To you today, that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. This is what he kind of says to them as he is about to leave. He says, I'm innocent of your blood. That's (laughs) Super hardcore, used to play in a heavy metal band. This seems like one of those lines that could have easily made it into a metal song. I'm innocent of your blood. But what what does he mean by that specifically? You know, when you're reading through the Bible, you can often find these little footnotes that will reference you back to a a different passage, another passage. And there's a little footnote for this passage that takes us back to Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 3, starting in verse 18. And this is the Lord speaking to Ezekiel and to the other leaders of Israel at this time. And he says, when I say to a wicked person, you will surely die, and you do not warn them or speak out to dissuade them from their evil ways in order to save their life, that wicked person will die for their sin, and I will hold you accountable for their blood. But if you do warn the wicked person, and they do not turn from their wickedness or from their evil ways, they will die for their sin, but you will have saved yourself. This is a... Honestly, a new concept to me in some ways. I think lots of times we're very individualistic in our culture, and so we like to think, you know, I'm going to stand before God, and the only thing I'm going to have to answer for is what I've done. Um, and these verses, I think the Apostle Paul even himself feels specifically, he's he's referencing back to this verse, um, he feels that as a leader, he has a responsibility to say everything that God requires him to say, to speak the entire will of God, not to hide anything, so that he knows he will be innocent of the blood of, of, of the people around him, the people who decide to disobey God. If they disobey God at that point, then it's on them. He knows he has done his part. So for Matt Chandler, the fact that leaders are actually going to have to give account to God, not only for their own sins, but maybe for, for not uh, correcting members of the church, it shows him that there's a, there's a real biblical connection between the leaders and the members of the church specifically. The second thing he says is that church discipline uh, requires clear membership. He kind of laments the fact that it's it's hard to do church discipline these days and that to do it well, you you need you need clearly defined membership. Um, this idea of church discipline is, is a complicated one, It's one that's kind of unpopular, I would say in in our culture today. Um, but the verse he uses to to really go into this is is kind of the one of the main verses of, related to church discipline, and it's in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5. Starting in verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, to this church in Corinth, he says, It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even the pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? He tells them, uh, you, you, you got to kick this guy out. Put him out of your fellowship. This man who is sleeping with his stepmother, the Apostle Paul, he, 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 he just can't believe it. He's like, this is the sort of thing even the pagans don't do, <laughs> and you guys are doing it. He can't believe it. What he encourages this church to do is to kick this man out of their fellowship. And again, for Matt Chandler, it has to be clear what that fellowship is for you to be able to be kicked out of it. And so he goes on in, uh, in, in verses 9 through 13 I'm just skipping ahead a little bit in that same chapter. The Apostle Paul gives them more instructions on this. And he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slander, a drunkard, or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. God will judge those outside. Expel the person, the wicked person, from among you. Uh, this idea from among you, you've got to be able to expel them from among you. For Matt Chandler, it's got to be very clear what the among you is. Who, who, who is within us? Who is a brother or sister? Who is a part of this? For church discipline to happen, you have to be able to clearly define that so that you can kick a person out. And the third and final point Matt Chandler makes in defense of this idea is that he says that the early church itself was organized and hierarchical sometimes we have this idea that the early church was 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 just very you know there, there weren't clear distinctions there weren't clear leaders everybody kind of got to do a little bit of whatever they wanted I know I personally was a part of a church when I was younger that that really firmly believed this and so um, I was a part of a house church that it was it, we were very adamant that no one was the pastor no one was an elder no one was in charge everybody was on the same level everyone was allowed to speak everyone was allowed to do whatever they wanted to do we I was very convinced of this Matt Chandler is convinced that that is actually not the case that is not what the early church was like and so in first timothy chapter 5 verses 3 through 16 you can kind of see the apostle paul laying out what that um, honor and hierarchy might look like by comparing widows and elders specifically he says to them give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn first of all to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family. And so repaying their parents and grandparents for this is pleasing to God. The widow who is really in need and left all alone, puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. Give the people these instructions so that no one may be open to blame. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives, and especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. This is the interesting part here. He says, no widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60, has been faithful to her husband, and is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the Lord's people, helping those in trouble, and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds." As for the younger widows, do not put them on such a list for when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they'll want to marry, and thus they bring judgment on themselves because they have broken their first pledge. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle, going about from house to house, and not only do they become idlers, but also busybodies who talk nonsense, saying things they ought not to. So I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Some, in fact, have already turned away to follow Satan. If any woman who is a believer has widows in her care, she should continue to help them, and not let the church be burdened with them, so that the church can help those who are really in need. This is a long section. It may seem somewhat unrelated, but it, it's it's interesting. It's it's the Apostle Paul giving very clear instructions as to which Uh, which types of widows in the church, this was something that was very important to the early church, caring for widows, caring for orphans, something you see all the way through the Bible. But it was very important to them to to care for the widows in in the church. And the Apostle Paul gives them very clear and and direct instructions as to um, which widows should be helped, which widows shouldn't be helped. And Matt Chandler's argument is that the, the clear, detailed, and organized way that the Apostle Paul goes about laying out uh, these rules shows that the, the church kind of had some, some structure, some organization, and some ideas about who could be helped and who couldn't be helped. And in fact, he, he goes so far as to say it, it looks like it, it, you can clearly see that they, they would give their money, kind of put it in one big pot, and they had specific rules <laughs> about who could receive help from that or not. But the, the next part, which uh, is in this same passage, I actually don't think we have it up on the screen, but I'll read it for you guys here, also from 1 Timothy chapter 5, is the interesting way that the Apostle Paul connects that whole argument about widows to elders, to the leaders in the church. And so he says that the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching, For the scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out grain, and the worker deserves his wages. And so he actually goes on to say, do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. Um, But those elders who are sinning, you are to approve before everyone so that the others can take warning. Um, And so he brings about this idea of the honor that is expected of widows and connects it even to elders specifically. This is actually one of the best verses you can kind of use um, to defend the idea of, of paid uh, church uh, elders, pastors, preachers, or teachers. Um, it's, it's kind of pretty clear that the Apostle Paul believes that double honor that he's talking about is that these elders uh, should be paid. And Matt Chandler's specific point is that it was very clear to them who uh, who the who the church leaders were. <laughs> Everyone knew who those elders were, and in fact, those elders had even kind of a, a, an, an extra level of um, accountability that they were going to be called to, and an extra level of a uh, proof that would have to be presented for a church member to entertain an accusation against them. And there's one more passage that he uses to defend this, and Act, it's Acts chapter six. It's just verses uh, 1 through 4. And he describes that in those days the number of disciples was increasing. And the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the 12 gathered all of the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and of wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them, and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. In this passage, it's again dealing with, with helping the widows, something which I, I said was very important to the early church. And the apostles are concerned that too much of their time is being taken up with just the, the, the day-to-day handlings of taking care of the widows. And so they encouraged the church to to select from among them seven men who can take on this responsibility, and and you can just kind of clearly see the the organization, the structure, the 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 kind of criteria that was used to select the leaders and to clearly define them. Uh, the the article is is really good. It goes on really long, and it gives lots of really really good uh, defense for the idea of. Membership organization clearly uh, defined membership clearly defined leaders and all of that being kind of a a biblical concept and again like I said we'll post this article later you'll be able to see if you want to go and read you know his full arguments I'm just giving you the quick overview of what he says but a lot of these passages uh, do show um, I think in some ways a a very clear uh, organization and a very I guess I can just say I understand why people like like uh Matt Chandler believe that um they're they're good biblical defenses for membership but if I'm being honest I'm not fully convinced even by Matt Chandler's arguments that uh that church membership the way we define it today is uh is the is perfectly defended by those passages and even not necessarily convinced that church membership is the only way to fulfill uh, what those passages are kind of hinting towards. So what I wanted to do uh, for the second part is just take each of the points that uh, Matt Chandler makes and kind of give you guys some other passages, some other things to think about to help kind of balance those out and show that those principles are still true, but I'm not necessarily sure that they uh, lend themselves to the idea of church membership as we define it necessarily. So the first point, again, Matt Chandler makes is that church leaders are accountable for their members. This is a good point. Something that, again, I think can be biblically defended. But a counterpoint I would make that we need to consider this too is that it's not just leaders that are accountable. We are actually all accountable for each other. Uh, Matthew chapter 18 is the uh, kind of biggest example of this. Uh, it's, It's a famous passage where Jesus shows how we're supposed to handle conflict in the church. And he says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Uh, this passage, uh, a lot of people use as a as a model, which I think is is as to how we should handle conflict within the church. But I think it's very clearly showing that it's not just um, the leaders that are supposed to do this. It's it's very interesting if we could put just that first uh, verse. Is uh, it 15 up again I want us to notice something here uh in this version of the NIV it says if if your brother or sister sins go and point out their fault I'm curious I don't know if in some of your bibles it's listed this way there's there's a there's a variant of this that you can see in some bibles which says if your brother or sister sins against you go and point out their fault um This is one of those interesting aspects of Bible translation where over the years, as Bibles were copied and and we got different um, uh, copies of the Bible, you started to get some slight differences in certain sections. And this is one of the most famous differences in some of the later manuscripts, the ones that come out later, you get them saying, if your brother or sister sins against you, then you got to go do this. But in most of the earliest manuscripts, and we would argue the more relia- most reliable ones we have, it simply says, if your brother or sister sins. Now, if you think about that for a second, you can understand why this is uh, complicated for us and why we would rather it be the second one. I know me personally, I'd rather be a second one. So I only have to confront people if they hurt me, <laughs> if they sin against me. You can kind of imagine some early scribe who was copying through the scriptures being like, I think... Surely Jesus just meant if someone sins against you, then you gotta go talk to them. But I would argue that again, the earliest and some of the more reliable manuscripts we have clearly just say if you if you see someone sinning, <laughs> then you have a responsibility to to, to go and to and to confront them about it. Um, in this very clearly ordered, organized, and I would argue, it needs to be loving way. It's not just something that we do, uh, uh, just. Certain people like confrontation, I'm not sure that this this is talking about, but it is talking about the importance of all of us understanding that we are all accountable for each other. Uh, James actually makes an interesting point where he connects it specifically with teachers. James chapter 3 verse 1, he says this very interesting thing where he says, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. It's interesting that the judgment of God has all these layers to it, obviously. And whether it is uh, the accountability we have for keeping e- each other on the path of following Jesus, whether it is the accountability that teachers have, I think we can clearly see uh, throughout the Bible that, that this extra level of accountability is not just something exclusively uh, for leaders. Now, it's clear that uh, it would make it easier for leaders if church membership was clearly defined. This has been one of my temptations here recently as I've uh, thought about what maybe my personal responsibility would be as a church leader. It would really, really be easy for me to, to be able to just have a nice little list of here's my church members. These are the only people God's gonna judge me for. If you're not on this list, don't worry about it. I'm fine. I, I, I really do think for a lot of church leaders, that's, that's the temptation. That's why we like church membership so much because it gives us a nice, clear... <laughs> Uh, boundary line <laughs> to who we are responsible for. And so um, I wish that were the case, but I, I believe that biblically it's act- those boundary lines are, are much wider, and it really does extend to anyone who would call themselves a, uh, a brother or sister or a follower of Christ. The second point, again, Matt Chandler makes is that church discipline requires clear membership. Um, that Basically, you can't have church discipline unless you can just clearly know who the members are. Again, I do think this point is true, but one thing that I think needs to be understood is that our churches today look very different from their churches. They look very different from what these first century churches looked like in a lot of ways. It's hard to to really explain uh, all the different ways that those first century churches were different. But one of the clearest and easiest ways we can understand it is that there weren't a lot of Christians. Uh, you know, m- most of the studies people can do, they're, 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 the, the, the numbers grew and obviously the Lord was bringing growth. But when you look at the population sizes of many of these cities versus how many Christians we believe would have been in those cities. Um, and you can even kind of see it from the way some of these uh, these books of the Bible are addressed. It's pretty clear that, you know, there, there is a church in uh, in 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 Corinth there is a church in Jerusalem there is and and it I, the implication I believe is that it was clearly known by all those church members in those cities who were the members of that church um, you know they were I guess I would say small enough groups of people that everyone in that city knew <laughs> for the most part who was a part of that church um, and so I do think that those boundary lines were actually a little bit easier for them to 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 draw sometimes because it was just very clear that they knew who was and who was not a part of that church, who was and who was not a brother or sister. The more interesting point, and we may be getting closer to this in our culture uh, today than in past times in American culture, but the reality is you didn't you didn't want to claim to be a Christian <laughs> in this day and age uh, to to take that title upon yourself to call yourself a brother or sister a follower of Christ um, brought a real threat. To your life, with it. This was not something you did lightly. You didn't just kind of nonchalantly say that you were going to be a Christian. You understood that when you claimed Christianity, um, you were you were you were putting your life on the line. You were you were literally understanding that you could die for this claim. And I think that that understanding, the sort of unpopularity of what it meant to be a Christian. Uh, again, limited the number of these kind of what I would call just surface level uh, in name only type Christians that we have in our culture today. I'm sure many of you can can think of so many people in your mind who um, you would ask them and they'd be like, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. Um, But they have no real relationship with the Lord, they don't read the scriptures, they don't fellowship with any church anywhere, and if you look at their lifestyle, it's uh, just full of of sin and a lifestyle that would be very um, against what the Lord would desire of them. I think it would have been harder to find those types of people (laughs) in the first century because to take that title upon yourself um, came with a lot of consequences, So uh, I do think that we have to understand that. We have to kind of uh, take the aspects of their culture that exist in our culture today, the ones that don't, and adapt the way that we handle church discipline today. I think this is one of the problems a lot of churches don't do when they've been doing church discipline. A lot of churches uh, in our culture today try to follow these passages and they try to follow them very strictly, very literally. And so they kick somebody out of their church what that usually means is you just, you can't come to the Sunday service. You know, you can't show up on Sunday. It's hard for churches to enforce that because it's like, what are you going to do? You're going to put like some security guards at the door and like, you know, have a list of like blacklisted people who can't come. But But the extra difficult thing that comes about that is we have so many churches and so many different types of churches in our culture today that unfortunately, if you kick somebody out of a church, they can just go down the street and find another one. And many times they can go down the street and find another church that will tell them, yeah, that's fine. You can keep doing that thing. That's not a problem. You don't uh, y- you don't have to stop doing that thing in your life that your old church kicked you out for. And so because of that, I think that church discipline has to look different in our context today. And it probably doesn't work the same as it did for their culture. Their churches were, were, were family units where they all got together. They ate together. That was their best friends. When you became a Christian, usually your your old uh, pagan friends and family would reject you you no longer had any friends you no longer had any community the only people you knew were other christians and so uh going back to this man in first corinthians who's sleeping with his stepmother for him to be kicked out of the church was a really big deal that was kicking him out of possibly his only uh, community that he had And so that would be a great motivator to get him to come back to to recognize the wrongs he was doing. And and unfortunately, we don't have that same type of motivator in our context today. So I don't think that that clearly defined church membership really solves as many problems as Matt Chandler believes that it would, especially when it comes to church discipline. The final point here is that uh, Matt Chandler makes is that the early church was organized and hierarchical. Again, this is something that Previously, I would have very much rejected. I used to be very into the idea that there was there's no hierarchy in the body of Christ. Um, I, I, I'm changing my mind on that a little bit, and, and I have been changing my mind on that specifically. Um, and I do think that a lot of the points, a lot of the passages that Matt Chandler brings up showing structure, leadership, hierarchy, and organization within the church, um, those, are, those are really, really good points. But I do think that the thing we need to remember, we always need to remember specifically is that even when you have that hierarchy, it's different in the church. In the church, biblical leadership is leadership by example. Uh, in 1 uh, Peter chapter 5, verses 1-4, through four, we kind of see Peter clearly laying out what that leadership looked like. And he's speaking to the elders, the leaders in that church, and he says, To the elders among you, I appeal, to, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed, Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those who are entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. This is an encouragement to the leaders, to the elders in that church, to that hierarchy that existed in the early church. And he very clearly tells them that the type of leaders that they are supposed to be are these people who, who don't lord it over people. They don't, they don't lord their leadership over people. And I think that the key verse you can see is that he says that they lead as servants and by example. Um, and so even though we have that clear hierarchy— it's it's a different type of hierarchy than what a lot of us may be used to. A lot of times, when we're used to, you know, people that are that are leaders just because, uh, and you just should respect them just because. Uh, we 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 kind of bristle up at that sometimes. We br- we bristle up at the idea of having to respect that hierarchy. But what we can clearly see in the church is that the the people that God puts in charge are people who are supposed to lead in a very specific way, by example, and not just by pure um hierarchy now, like I said, all of this is just kind of some 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 contrast that I would make to what uh, what Matt Chandler is saying. Um, I'm not nece- I, I think those passages are true. I think those are good things for us to consider, but they're not necessarily those the sort of open and shut cases that I I think he thinks that they are. <laughs> so the question then as, as, as we're kind of finishing up here is does that um, where does that put us? Is, are we just back to square one? So it's like, okay, so we don't know. Is church membership biblical? Is it not biblical? I can kind of see it from both ways. In some ways, are we just kind of at an impasse? Do we do we not know what church membership is? I think to really answer that question, because no, I don't think we're at square one. I am trying to take us forward. There's a there's a there's a real direction, especially here at Wayfarers at this church that I want to take us towards. Um to begin to answer that question, we have to ask ourselves first. Um, maybe what what is the reason behind why why are we asking this question? Why do people ask this question of whether church membership is biblical, and, and why do we have trouble with it? What why is it that we are asking this question? I I've asked several people. I've actually had several conversations with people about this topic, and and it's interesting. There's a, there's a few things that have just kind of continued uh, to come up. One of the first things I have heard from people who are kind of questioning church membership is that they're upset with churches that, that force them to submit to certain teachings, uh, to, to creeds certain churches have, you know, certain churches have these creeds, these lists of things you have to believe. And many churches I know of will actually like print off this list, hand you the paper. You've got to sign off saying 100% of these things I believe, uh, and, and, and I'm not going to change on those. I, I just firmly believe everything on this list. And many churches require you to sign a paper like that with a long list of doctrinal statements for you to be a member. And I think a lot of people bristle, r- rightly bristle up at that. I think we should have freedom to be able to, to discuss passages and scriptures and, and to disagree on certain interpretations of certain passages. These are ancient documents that have been translated that there is, uh, there is wisdom that has to go into interpreting them and to understanding them. And we need to have that freedom to be able to have that conversation within the church to be able to sometimes disagree and to be able to push each other. I've learned so much from the scriptures by having conversations with people who hold a doctrinal position that's very different than the one that I held at the beginning. And the, the kind of growth that we are keeping ourselves away from by not doing that um, is, is, is difficult. And so I think a lot of people bristle up at the idea of church membership because it feels like somebody who's just trying to force you to believe all of these very specific things. And I need, I think we do need to have freedom to be able to to discuss those. There's certain essential things that uh, you don't have the freedom to question, certain essential things about, uh, you know, the divinity of Christ, his death, his resurrection, certain things that like, you know, if you're like, nah, that didn't happen, then I would just say, well, then you're not a Christian. Yeah. <laughs> but other things, like other things where, where there is some questions, where there, where there are good, well-meaning people who come to different perspectives on it, I think we need to be able to have differences of opinion. And unfortunately, sometimes church membership is a way to just kind of cut off that debate and force us all to agree on certain things. The other reason I think a lot of people have issues with it is because people in power, some of these leaders, abuse that power. Unfortunately, this is really coming to light recently. I'm sure many of you can think in your head immediately of very famous pastors and church leaders who have... um, Uh, abuse their power in 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 various different ways um unfortunately recently there's been a lot of stories of sexual abuse coming from church pastors there's been a lot of stories of emotional abuse from church pastors and many of us probably have experiences where church leaders uh don't do what what peter says in first peter They, they they lord their authority over people and they don't serve as servants by example and so sometimes when we've been hurt by people who are in power over us, when we've been hurt by those hierarchies, uh, we have this temptation to just reject the hierarchy altogether. Um, I've seen this myself a little bit in certain ways people deal with uh, with, with politics. When when you have a, a leader, a political leader, a leader of your country, a leader of your party, whatever it might be, who does something that that does really cause you harm or cause people that you love harm. The temptation sometimes is to say, I'm done with government. I'm not going to do anything these people say. I'm going to do whatever I want. They can't tell me what to do. Don't tread on me. Let me do whatever I want to do. But the, the, the Apostle Paul and many of the early church leaders, I think, are dealing with this specifically in their context. And over and over and over again, they encourage the Christians, continue to submit to those governing authorities. Especially sometimes, even if they are, when they are, um not worthy of that submission. Think about how much that could say for the gospel when they see these people submitting to those government authorities. Think about it. The types of governments that that the early writers of the New Testament and that Jesus himself, the types of governments he's telling them to submit to, these were horrible governments filled with uh, leaders who were uh, would abuse their power, would kill other people to get in power, would sexually abuse and sexually assault other people. The, the, the sort of abuses of power and the sort of corruption that was present in these governments was on a level that is hard to find even in our context today. But even still, even with those governments, uh, the, the, the apostles call the church to still submit to those governing authorities. And I think the same is true in the church I, I will be the first to admit, there have been so many church leaders who have hurt people in the church. They have sinned, they have done wrong, and they will face judgment for those things that they have done. But that doesn't mean we throw the baby out with the bathwater. That doesn't mean that we throw out all structure, hierarchy, organization, or leadership with that. Even when certain leaders fail, we still need leaders. We still need Uh, that that clear organization that comes uh, with a church that has clear hierarchy. Uh, Over and over and over again, the Apostle Paul says that God is a God of order. (laughs) And I think for there to be order, there needs to be structure. And finally, I think that one of the reasons that we have issues with church membership probably does deal with that church discipline thing. We've sort of misunderstood the idea that we are not supposed to judge. I think I've heard a lot of people say that. Oh, don't judge, don't judge. Jesus says, "Don't judge. Let, judge not, lest you be judged." And it's just kind of this, this, this rule that a lot of Christians have just taken as a, as a, as a blanket rule across the board. I'm not supposed to judge anybody. And for those people, I would specifically read you again the, the words of the Apostle Paul in First Corinthians chapter five, verses twelve and thirteen, and and here. The apostle Paul says, uh, what business of, is it of mine to judge those outside of the church? He does pretty clearly say, if you're outside the church, if you're in the world, I don't judge you. But he does say, are you not to judge those inside? He says, God is going to judge those outside. You judge those inside. expel the wicked person from among you. We, I understand why we have so many issues with church discipline. But I think uh, it is clear that it's 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 sort of a, it is a necessary thing. It, it's it's necessary for the, the people of God to be judging each other. <laughs> That's uh, maybe a controversial thing to say, but I think it's very clear biblically. Um, we are we are we are judging each other, and I, and I actually think this is one of those things that sounds awful on the on the face of it, but is really encouraging if you really look into it. Um, I'm oftentimes really, really bad at seeing the areas where I'm doing terribly. (laughs) Uh, We all have our own blind spots. We all have this ability to just not um, see certain aspects of our lives. I was just having a conversation earlier today with a few uh, members here at the church about how there, there are very clear sins and issues in my life that I've had to deal with over the last few years that I probably spent 20, 25 years not even knowing was a problem <laughs> until somebody else, something external came along and pointed it out to me. And so one of, the, one of the the joys really of being a part of a church community is that you know it's not just up to you to figure out what's wrong with you. <laughs> It's not just up to you to be, like, perfectly aware of everything that you need to fix in your life. You have people around you who can sometimes maybe see things more clearly than you can, who, who are helping you, pointing things out that you may not have noticed, looking at areas where you can improve yourself. And I think the really encouraging and amazing part of, uh, of that, that accountability that we have in the church is that it's, it's from people who, who love you people who care about you, and people who have your best in mind. Like I said, there are some people who like conflict. They just like to confront people. And unfortunately, I do think sometimes those people find their way into the church and it just becomes a free-for-all for them. It's an awesome opportunity for them to point out everything that is wrong with everybody else. I don't think that that is what this accountability and this church discipline that is described in the scriptures is talking about. What this is talking about is a group of people who love each other and who are who are actually trying to help each other. When we are pointing something out to you, it is not because we, we feel good about pointing out how bad you are. Because we are the first to admit that we struggle and we are sinners who have sinned in so many different ways. But what we are doing is we love you, we care for you, and we realize that these things that you are doing are actually hurting you, are keeping you from living the life that God wants for you. And we are trying to help you to rid yourself of those burdens. So, Uh, the final question kind of becomes here, uh, what model are we going to use here? (laughs) Um, what, what, what is the model that we're going to use here specifically at Wayfarers? Um, I do think that the church membership model that we use today is, is very, um, uh, very Western, maybe very American in certain ways. This idea of having very clear uh, lists of people that, um, That you like sign a contract for to 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 be a part of uh, that church and um i'm going to be one of the first to say i though i don't think that that model is necessarily uh biblical i don't think that it's sinful i think lots of times there are ways that we can take the the scriptures and apply them to our culture and this is one way that many churches have have found to try to fulfill the scriptures. So I would encourage you, even if you don't agree with that model, have a little bit of grace for the people who do. It's obviously helping them and serving them in some ways, and I think there's some clear biblical uh, benefits to that, as I've hopefully laid out today. But what I want to use here at Wayfarers is more of um, what I guess I'm just calling a a family model. We're going to use a family model um it, then there's a few things that come up with what it means what what does that mean what does a family model mean there's a few things that I, a few kind of really three main points that I think kind of come up when we are using that as our as our context the first is that uh to be a family you have to have a common last name you you got to have something that 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 defines you together uh first Corinthians 5 verse 11 uh is where the apostle paul is telling them not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is one of all of these sexually immoral greedy idolater all of these other things uh, again to to be a family you have to have a common last name what he, what he says is that this applies to people who are called brothers those of you who've been here at the church you're going to get so tired of hearing me say this point because i say it all the time Uh, but it's very important to me the early church was the first group of people where we have them using family terms to refer to people that are not their biological family cults do it all the time now brother so and so sister so and so father so and so but uh from most of the study that people have done before christianity you you don't have people who aren't biologically related using familial terms to refer to each other this would have been super weird for the early church they would have been like wait that's my brother that's not my brother I don't I just met that guy like like a few days ago but it was very clear to the church that being um a a family was the way that they wanted to think about things they 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 understood that they were a part of of a family and what it meant to be a part of a family was that you would uh willfully acknowledge that and you would use maybe those familial terms to refer to each other and so all i'm saying about you have to have a common last name is just this idea that you have some sort of name some sort of way of defining who is a part of that family some sort of naming convention that you use the simplest way we will do it we do it here in our context is just that we place uh different names uh on our churches specifically And people say, well, what church are you a part of? And here we would just say, part of Wayfarers. That's the church that I'm a part of. That's kind of that common name that we're all drawing in on together. Um, Pretty soon, I wanna go in a little bit more deeper on what that name actually means, how we came up with that name. But it most simply just means that we're followers of the way, which is how the early church referred to themselves, followers of Jesus Christ, followers of the way. The second point is that to be adopted to be an adopted family, specifically, so family—it's not biological. You, you actually have to choose to be a part of it. <laughs> um, it's this is one of the, the the coolest parts about adoption. I've heard a lot of um, people who have um, had adopted children or children who who were adopted. Um, one of the most incredible parts of that familiar relationship of a relationship between in, an adopted family relationship is that you know that that you're your parents specifically chose you. It, it's not just that you, um, you were born to them and you know, just was your, your family. They, they had to make all kinds of decisions. They had to make all kinds of sacrifices. They had to do all kinds of like willful things to bring you in to be a part of their family. And so this type of family that we're talking about in, in uh, this model is not a family that is biological but it's a family that we we choose to be a part of uh, we've talked in our core values about the importance of ritual to us but when i think one of the most important things about ritual is that when we do ritual when we do these physical things with our bodies uh to to convey uh, spiritual truths we we there's action that has to take place in that moment. You have to actually do something. It's not just something you think about. It's not just something you say in your head. It's not just something that you assent to. But there's like a there's like a physical action that has to take place. And it gives you kind of this opportunity to make a choice. So over the next few months, we're going to kind of show you guys what that's going to look like for us. Um, kind of what uh, this... I guess becoming a part of our family ritual will look like. Just be on the lookout. We're going to have a little bit more information about what that will be like. Um, but then, finally, if you do go through all of that, if you're going to if you're going to decide to be a part of our family, you're going to make that choice, and uh, you are um, going to you know claim that title, that familial title in some form or another. If you claim us, what 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 does this mean? And this is where I'm going to bring up the last verse for today, which is Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verse 25. Um, This is a verse you've probably heard preachers use all the time to make you feel guilty for not coming to church. Uh, And they will say uh, that uh, the writer of Hebrews says to this church, you got to not, don't give up meeting together as some of you are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching The, the day of the Lord is what he's talking about specifically in this moment. And again, this is one of those verses that's been used to to guilt trip people for not coming to the Sunday service, maybe, for not coming and sitting and singing some songs and listening to preaching. But I want us to look at specifically why the writer of Hebrews says that you're not supposed to give up meeting together. He says some of them are in the habit of doing this, of giving up meeting together. But what does he want them to do? He wants them to encourage each other uh, all the more as you see the day approaching. The purpose of that gathering, the purpose of that coming together is, is for encouragement. It's to spur one another on. Uh, there's other passages that talk about spurring one another on to love and to good deeds. That's, that's the purpose of the gathering together. The purpose of the gathering together is not to, uh, to sing songs, to worship. The purpose is not to hear the word. All of those things are good. Those are things that can help towards encouragement But I really do think that the purposes of us gathering together is uh, to encourage one another. And so um, I guess I'm going to do the thing that all these other preachers are doing and guilt trip you guys a little bit for uh, not gathering together. But uh, we have kind of an idea in mind over the next few months of what we want to be doing to kind of really help put this action into practice. Um, So for the months uh, uh, of August and September, Uh, We're actually not going to do our live stream at all. Um, We're um, hopefully going to give some of the the people who have been volunteering and doing amazing work, helping us put these live streams on, give them a little bit of a break. They can kind of be a part of our services. But we're also hoping that for those of you that have been tuning in, and we're so thankful that you have been, um, this will give you an opportunity to come and to meet with us uh, in person. These next couple months, what, what I'm just going to call them is is sort of meet the family months. <laughs> these are going to be opportunities for us as a family to meet each other, to get to know each other, and to do that, to encourage one another. So we're not going to be doing these live streams. We're just going to encourage each other to, to, to meet together uh, for what this family should be. Um, because ultimately, I do really think, Uh, Many of you us probably experienced this in the age of COVID um, as you tried to maybe FaceTime with parents or grandparents or as you maybe tried to talk on the phone or or text with people. That's great. I love that we have that technology. I love that we have this uh, digital technology. But you can't really be a family at a distance like that. To really be a family, we've got to get to know each other. We've got to meet together. So that's what these next couple of months are going to be. It's going to be an opportunity for us to meet together and to be a family. So I'd encourage you. Come hang out with us. Come meet the family. That's going to be the next, uh, for the eight weeks, I guess, the, you know, the four weeks of August and September, it's going to be the meet the family months opportunity for you to come and to meet with us here in person. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the fact that you do give us a family. Uh, many of us have, unfortunately, maybe had bad experiences with our biological families. And even if we have had good experiences with those families, we um, we know that, that that there's just kind of this whole other level that comes with a family that is united around you. And I ask, Lord, that you would just help those that have been um, interacting with us and, and a part of, of what we've been doing, um, help them to to. To get excited about this opportunity, to get to meet the other members of that family, help them. Uh, I, I can I can definitely understand some of the anxieties people might feel. It's 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 kind of terrifying to finally get somewhere in person, and all the anxieties you could feel about being socially awkward and having people make fun of you, and not knowing if you're just going to stand in a corner and no one's going to talk to you. And, and those are very real fears. But I ask you, Lord, help give these people, give everyone courage, give us courage, uh, and help us to see. Just sort of the, the real beauty, help us to imagine the real beauty that can come when we gather together as a family. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. So to finish up here, today, we're going to do um, just a song of worship. Um, this last week I guess, yeah, the last week, we were uh, at, at a part at a youth conference. Knock over my stand there. We were at it. We were at a youth conference that uh, um, was a really interesting experience. Uh, it was really good for a few reasons, but uh, one of the things that was awkward uh, that we experienced with Joseph and Reagan was that at least on that first night we were trying to to play the music and nobody sang, nobody knew. They they didn't know the songs. It was really awkward to just kind of be on stage staring at a whole bunch of people that are just like staring back at you. Uh, so we wanted an opportunity to be able to sing together. Um, one of the people at that conference had asked me, me and my brother Jeremy, we play music, we used to play screamo music, and they're asking, they're like, were were your parents musicians? Was that a part of what you guys did as a family? Um, And I kind of had to tell them, you know, not at all. <laughs> Neither of my parents were musicians. They definitely weren't screamo musicians. The heavy metal was not the thing that they were interested in. But I love um, that Lizzie Bliffin, who was supposed to be here with us today, she wasn't able to be her daughter Alina sick. So Lizzie, if you're watching, anybody else who's watching, definitely pray for her. I think she's getting better, but I know she would appreciate the prayers. One of the cool things about the Bliffin family is that they would always, they're all really good singers and they're all really good musicians. And it was really, really cool when you meet those musical families to see the ways that they kind of sing together. People who sing harmonies that are families, it's crazy that those harmonies just like lock in. There's this extra level of just like amazing uh, harmony that can come between family members that sing together. So I've been talking about family this whole Uh, last few minutes here. And we thought one of the best ways to end it would be just for us to take an opportunity to sing together. But we didn't want to repeat this week, so we tried to pick a song that hopefully everybody knows. So join in as we sing this last song.